Columbia Technology Ventures presents Is This an Invention? Now What? with CTV Licensing Director Ofer Weinberger, CTV Licensing Officer Ron Katz, and Columbia's Chief Patent Counsel Jeff Sears, moderated by Anjali Saki, Professor of Pathology and Cell Biology at Columbia University. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. Saki and I'm a pathologist and a faculty member here at Columbia University but before I tell you my story I want to start off by um, having the panel everyone on the panel introduce themselves so start we can start from the end. I'm Afra Weinberger <coughs> I'm a director for licensing at Columbia Technology Ventures the tech transfer office here at Columbia and so I'll, I'll give you just a snapshot of my background in how I got to where I am and then in the course of the discussion on the panel that we're um, looking forward to having you'll understand a bit more about what the responsibilities and what our mission is. Uh, so I have a PhD in immunology from Harvard Medical School. I came to Columbia as a faculty member and after a number of years on faculty I was asked to serve as a faculty liaison to the technology transfer office. After that, I was so enthusiastic and interested in what the tech transfer office does that I made a rather gut-wrenching decision at the time to change my career and I did not submit my, my um, competitive grant a grant proposal, my application for continued funding, took a job in the tech transfer office and the rest has been kind of history. Uh, so I've been the director since, at the medical school since 2000. I've worked with many of the PIs and the postdocs and the graduate students on the campus and I look forward to continuing to work with you and meeting new faces and helping you translate your scientific discoveries down the path in collaboration with industry. My name is Jeff Sears. I'm Columbia's Chief Patent Counsel. I have a PhD in physics and after physics I went to law school. I've been practicing patents for about 15 years. I've been at Columbia for about 10 years. I work with university researchers and my colleagues at CTV on getting patents and using patents to leverage results, including research funding. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Ron Katz. I'm a senior licensing officer. I did my PhD here in neuroscience on the main campus here and then did an executive MBA after I joined the office 10 years ago now. So and. Uh, I work with a variety of faculty to commercialize their inventions. So uh, again, my name is Anjali Saki and I work in the Department of Pathology and Cell Biology here at Columbia. Uh, I've been on staff for approximately eight years. Um, and one of the things that has been uh, very exciting here is that I've been able to file patents and learn a little bit along the way and also have a licensing agreement. And um, so this has been 
the, I have to say CTV has been very supportive in translating my idea to real life practice and um, I can share some of these experiences with you during our talk and uh, but I figure before I delve into the details maybe we can start off with some questions and if at any time during this conversation people have questions please feel free to ask and the, um, the way we'll probably structure this is I'll, uh, I actually have questions about patenting, even though I've been through this process. Uh, I would like to learn more about it, and I don't have all the answers. So we have our panel here, so we'll talk a little bit about patenting ideas, marketing, licensing, and then how the tech transfer process uh, works. So my first uh, question to the panel here is, what are the different types of patents? So one of the things I can say is I have been watching a lot of Shark Tank over some time. And one of the questions that often comes up is, what is, for instance, a utility patent? And um, so I'd like to learn a little bit more about patents uh, with regard to utility and some general concepts. Sure, uh, I'm happy to take that one. Um, <laughs> Shark Tank is a really great reference point. Um, I use it a lot in my discussions of patents, for reasons we'll probably hear about later today. When you think about patents, the first thing you should think about, instead of patents, is inventions. You have to have an invention. An invention is a solution to a problem that works for its intended purpose. And when you hear it works for its intended purpose, you're thinking it has a use. So utility patents are patents that refer to things that are functional. They have a use. They are your common inventions. In Shark Tank land, you're usually hearing a couple of terms. Uh, one term you might hear is a provisional patent. Another term you might hear is a pending patent or a pending application. And you might also hear an issued patent. A provisional patent refers to a very thin filing, usually in a patent office somewhere in the world. On its own, it will never lead to the exclusive rights that a patent confers. It's just the start of a process. A pending patent means it's just another step in that process. Typically, you start with a provisional, and then you go to what we call a non-provisional or just a pending application. It's somewhere in the queue to be reviewed by a patent office. An issued patent is really what you're looking for. This is an exclusive grant of rights from the US government or another government to an inventor or to the owner of the inventor's rights. If you own a patent, you have the exclusive legal right to prevent anyone else from practicing your invention. This is why the sharks are so interested. They want to know, do you have the right to keep everyone out from making this invention, from using it, from selling it? So that at a high level are patents. So the next question uh, that I have is, is every invention or any great idea that I have uh, patent, patentable at Columbia? And how is it decided whether you know, Columbia is going to patent this or not patent this? So I'll start with a, a bit of a high-level overview on that and then hand it off to Ron and Jeff to, uh, to fill in with um, some of the details. And so a patent is not a, an end unto itself. A patent is a means to an end. It's one of the components that we need in order to put together a package that we hope will ultimately um, be attractive and of interest to industry to then partner with us, to collaborate with you, with your labs, 
or to enter into an agreement with the university that gives the company or the investor the right to then um, take your innovation, your invention, your discovery, and advance it and develop it into a product that will ultimately um, hopefully be successful and make it to the market. And so what do I mean by that? Um, a patent is worthwhile if it um, describes an invention that has some potential commercial value. So to answer your question specifically, Anjali, the, the university makes a decision about whether, and the university that is you know, part of the jobs of the tech transfer office and the attorneys who are working closely with us, as well as outside advisors, who we bring in, many of them with um, experience and a track record of working in the private sector and in industry. And, and Linda Duchak is here in the front row, and she's one of the expert advisors that we have. Um, so with all this input, what we do is we evaluate a scientific discovery from two perspectives. One perspective is, is this invention patentable? And for that, we rely heavily on um, the input and guidance from our patent attorneys, both in-house patent attorneys as well as outside law firms. And also, what is the commercial, the potential commercial value and interest in this particular discovery in this invention? And because of what I said when I started, which is that a patent is not an end unto itself. It is only a means to, it's one of the ingredients, necessary components in many cases, particularly in the life sciences, but not at all sufficient in order to attract a, a private sector investor or partner. So we're looking at both these um, parameters, commercial potential, as well as patentability. Now, um, oh. and I, I would add, in addition to that, in some sectors such as software or um, more of the engineering uh, uh, sciences, a patent may not be necessary in order to commercialize your invention. So just, uh, we do a lot of licensing software, or what we call know-how licenses, where we can license the design or the source code of an invention without having a patent behind it that still has commercial value to the licensee. I also wanted to add one other point, and that is that um, it's worth noting that in this particular activity, of supporting translational research and technology transfer, the university is actually providing real resources and a budget at no, they're not charging the investigators for this service and for this support. And the activity of filing and prosecuting patent applications is an expensive activity. The university is putting up the budget for that. Um, the vast, a very significant number of patent applications do not 
see themselves successfully commercialized. So it's a very risky enterprise, and yet the university has set aside budget for that. You also um, avail yourselves of expert uh, legal advice and guidance, again, both in-house as well as external legal advice, as well as the experts in um, negotiation, marketing, and you know all the resources that are embedded in the tech transfer office and, and operation. So um, just following on that, another question is, what happens if the university is not interested in the idea or doesn't think this has patent potential? Is this something, um, is the idea then the, uh, that of the individual and can that individual pursue it on his or her own? Jeff, why don't you take that from a policy perspective? Sure, so the university's goal is to work with its researchers in a collaborative way. If CTV decides that the invention is not interesting, could be it's not interesting for a commercial reason, could be it's not interesting for a patent reason. Maybe the potential scope of patent protection is too narrow for it to be commercially interesting, what have you. Uh, if the university decides it's not interesting, the university can, upon request, release its rights in the invention, whatever those rights might be, back to the faculty member. So if the university doesn't want it, they will give it back to you. And is every invention or idea someone has uh, owned by the university or, you know, if, if I obviously do something that's related to my field, that's something I would bring to the university, but if I, actually I think I asked Cindy this question some years ago, what if I had the idea to develop my own Snuggie? Is that something <laughs> um, that I would bring to Columbia, or is that considered my own idea and independent of the university? It's a good question. It's one that's asked <laughs> frequently. And I think the way I'll answer it is this. Not that specific question. <laughs> Not with the Snuggie part, I but uh, the way I'll answer it is this. The university's goal is to work with its researchers to commercialize the inventions that result from the researchers' activities either in a university lab or that are a result of activities that are occurring on university time. What does this really mean? Well, here's what it means. If you come up with an invention and you're not really sure, do I own it? Does the university own it? Your best step, and again, I work for the university, so just you know, keep this in the back of your mind. <laughs> Your best step is always to disclose it to CTV. We're not going to look to take advantage of you. We're going to look to work with you collaboratively. And if it's something that maybe we don't think we own, we'll let you know. But maybe you want to use that invention to work with us because we're very sophisticated regardless. So approach us. We'd happy to wait, be happy to weigh in on the question. And if it's not ours, we'll let you know. So once um, an you know, idea or invention is patented, what happens to take that idea further? Like, how do we commercialize the product? How does CTV help? How should an inventor help? Sure, so, um, so once we've decided to patent your invention or we feel that there is commercial potential of your invention, the first step is to go out to industry and see if we can find a commercial partner. So we have, uh, I think there's 10 licensing officers like myself between the two campuses. We also have uh, an army of interns who help us identify 
companies that may be interested in your invention. And so we develop what we call a technology brief or marketing materials to describe your invention. And then we have uh, contacts within many different industries and different companies who sort of serve on the other side of, of what I do. They're looking for new inventions to bring in to their, their company. So we basically go out and approach and see if we can do some matchmaking for technologies that are coming out of the, the research labs at the university. Um, it's a slow process because it takes time for the research to advance to a certain stage whereby industry may be interested in uh, taking it in-house. It's critical that the investigator or inventor help the licensing officer develop those or approve the marketing materials. Um, basically, it's, it's sort of like speed dating, I would describe it, or, or you basically have to get in front of enough companies till you find the one who's gonna want to take it to the next stage. And so we really need, we work very closely with our faculty to develop the marketing materials, the pitch, um, and present the, your best foot forward in terms of what the technology can and, and can do and how it can be developed commercially. And maybe Anjali can talk about her experience with working with Cindy to uh, see her technology to the next stage. Yeah. So um, uh, just briefly, Anjali, I have a question sure. just to add on to yeah. that, a question yeah. for you. So a phrase that's used a lot in our daily work is that we're working with early stage technologies. So when an invention is reported to us or a scientific discovery or a scientific concept is reported to us, very often it's not ready yet to be out licensed <coughs> to a company. And I think that kind of ref was reflected in your experience yes. as well. So I will be briefly, I think this is a good time to share my experiences and what I've uh, done over some years. Uh, some things have been coincidental, and some things have been luck, and some have been a lot of effort. Um, so I used to, or I still work on the 15th floor, and at that time the CTV office was down the hallway. Uh, I had a, a problem in the pathology laboratory and uh, how cells were processed, and I had an uh, idea on how to resolve this or solve this salute problem. And just by chance, uh, Cindy Lang used to work down the hallway, and I approached her with this idea, not really knowing if this is something that is really an invention or not. And anyway, so CTV is very helpful in guiding you and saying, yes, this does have uh, potential um, to file a patent or not. Um, so that was the initial stage. And I think one of the hardest parts uh, for me was, OK, I have this idea. How, what you know, this is all in my mind. I have some background in art, architecture. I made the drawings, but I don't actually have a real prototype. Who's going to design this? Who's going to make this? And again, I think a lot of it, uh, again, some of it has been luck. And um, it just so happened I spoke to one of my clinical colleagues who mentioned that, you know, there's potential to get funding and collaborate with an engineer in the university. This was the Col Columbia Coulter Translational Fund. and. Um, so I applied for this, first time I didn't get it. Um, and one of the things is, it was very early stage. I don't, yes, it's an idea and you know it has a potential and, and CTV filed a patent for it. But I think it, it's sort of a challenge. You know, how do you get the funding um, to make the prototype, but then at the same time when you want funding, you know, people say, I want to see a prototype. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. And I think one of 
The things I'm very thankful for is people in CTV really believed in me and I actually got a seed fund for this very early stage. And at the same time, I was matched up with an engineer um, in the university. So he and I worked together in uh, developing a prototype. And subsequently, we got Columbia, um, the fund from the Columbia Coulter Translational Fund. And in terms of commercialization, uh, you know, I, I thought, how hard could this be? And actually, it's not so easy. And, um, and a lot of things have just really been coincidence. And one of the things I can recommend to people, you know, if you have an idea, I think, uh, at least this is my experience. Maybe I, don't, I shouldn't say too much. You know, a lot of times people just want to keep everything close to them and not share it. And, you know, I actually did mention some of these things to my clinical colleagues and not really related to uh, the invention itself, but they introduced me to representatives from companies, uh, just, you know, how to make their specimens better. And basically, one thing led to another and so on and so forth. And then I mentioned, you know, I actually have this idea and you know, working with CTV and the other company uh, representatives, that that's actually what led ultimately to a licensing deal. Um, and again, it wasn't such a, it, it sounds simple, but it's actually taken some time and years. And I think some of the resources that were available were really important. And some of the, the few things I can highlight are certainly working with CTV, and they actually have a lot of connections. So we um, worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and residents who guided me on how to even come up with an executive summary. And you know, if you actually saw my executive summary, you would think, okay, you know, you can put this together in a day. But it was actually a lot of uh, revisions of this, of how to say it, what language to use, and I think that's been very helpful. And um, so. Ultimately, I would say I, CTV was very helpful in making, help um, cultivate those connections. I, you know, initiated some of this, but it wouldn't be without this sort of a collaborative effort uh, on how to get these deals. So, and the person who is very instrumental, she's sitting uh, here, uh, Cindy Lang. She's one of the licensing officers and uh, very patient. <laughs> And so, so I would add that this is an iterative process between CTV and the investigator. So while we have the expertise in negotiating the license agreement, we are not the ones who develop the technology. And so you can think of us as your agent and your coach, right? So we are trying to uh, work with you to develop the technology, to work on the marketing materials, to introduce you to the right people but also as you're out in, in your scientific meetings and your presentations and meeting people, those are the contacts that may drive the deals. And so as Anjali said, her connections between uh, people at the hospital looking for new technologies or trying to sell their technologies led to the appropriate connections to then result in the deal. So many of the, ch the, the transactions occur through that sort of mechanism more than sort of the cold marketing which, which provides a lot of feedback on how to develop that technology and get it to the next stage, which may result in a license. But it's, it's really a lot of the faculty relationships or introductions that drive the transactions. Ron, from your experience in the trenches yeah. with your investigators pitching technologies and describing their developments to companies and to investors, 
What are some observations that you've made that might be good to share? So I think that the number one thing to think about as an investigator is you're not presenting, it's not a scientific presentation where you're expecting other scientists to critique your science, right? You are presenting a business opportunity for a company to take in-house to develop commercially. So I would, that my microphone? I don't know. I would suggest that when you're presenting your science, uh, think about presenting the business opportunity rather than uh, critiquing your own science. For some reason, scientists like to, oh, <coughs> to critique their own work. And that's not the point of when you're, when you're pitching to industry. You want to put your best foot forward. You want to you know, have confidence in the science that you're presenting. Let the scientists at the company poke the holes in your science. Right, so I think that's that's the number one lesson. Um, be confident in what you have, and they're looking for new opportunities, so they need you as much as you need them. So that's something that I think a lot of investigators don't realize as well. So, so one of the other questions I have, um, you know, when I first started this process, there was interest uh, among groups. Uh, you know, they wanted to have access to this technology, whether it was to license or do a startup. Um, and one of the things I struggled with, and uh, Keith, who was the co-investigator on this, is, you know, how do you decide which path to take? Uh, I've obviously taken the licensing path. And how do you advise people on whether they should license a technology? Should they go with a small company, a large company? Um, is it an independent decision? Do you play a role in it? So, I would say in your experience, you had multiple opportunities for uh, licensing your technology. In, in the majority of cases, there are not multiple suitors for the technology, <laughs> to, to put it <laughs> simply. So, um, generally, I think, but the question whether the decision to go through to start a new company or to uh, license your technology to an established company is one that we get often. And I would say starting a new company requires a lot more uh, effort on the part of the investigator than licensing to an established company. You have to find a management team. You have to get venture capital investment or other capital investment. Um, and so that takes a lot more effort and time to, to develop the technology than potentially licensing to an existing established company. It really depends on what the technology is, what the stage of the technology is. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of startup activity now at Columbia, and I think that's due to a change in the New York City entrepreneurial ecosystem in the last couple of years. There's a lot more VCs uh, coming to New York City looking for opportunities. There's a, a lot more infrastructure being put in place by the city to allow uh, successful startups, especially in the life sciences. Um, and so it really depends if, if the technology can, can form the basis for a company or it's a one product can be added to a portfolio of a company. I think the line used to be much clearer between whether a technology was better suited for the startup uh, commercialization strategy versus licensing out to an established company, whether large or small. I think that line has become much blurrier in the last few years. 
where um, many companies would like to see an early stage technology further matured and cultivated and nurtured in a startup and then acquired, even though it will be acquired at a much higher price than they would have had to pay had they licensed it at an earlier stage. So it really does depend. Um, what we try to do is actually explore all possibilities. And so when we have a technology, an invention that um, we, we think has some commercial value or commercial potential, we, we market it. We market it to all comers. So we will market it to investors, to venture capitalists. We are seeing more and more traffic from venture arms of established pharmaceutical companies, which is a very interesting you know, new trend. And we will market it to established companies, both large and small. And then we'll sit down with the inventor look at you know, what we've got, what the possibilities are, and discuss the pros and cons of the various um, possible paths and pick one to pursue. So it's very much of a collaborative effort with the inventor. Um, yeah, a lot of the discussion so far has been what rights does the university have? The IP is owned by the university and that's a term that that's a condition of employment at the university but we work very very closely with the scientists and with the inventors on developing a strategy for commercial for commercializing those research discoveries so what percentage of patents that you file actually result in um, commercialization whether it's licensing startups so I guess part of the question is how difficult um, and how much of an effort does the inventor have to put in um, to market? And I know Ron sort of alluded to this already. Um, yeah, so I, I think the industry average is something like one in six inventions get licensed and, and, um, and one in 10 of those actually make it to market or actually generate any revenue. So it's a, it's a very difficult uh, the, or low success rate. That being said, um, you know, Columbia is one of the most cutting-edge research institutions in the world, and the, and the research coming out of Columbia is, you know, people are coming to us, right, looking for novel innovations. So we have less of a hurdle in terms of, of getting technology out there. Um, but it takes time, and so, as Anjali alluded to, it's not only, you know, it's early stage, but it's you know, you present to industry, they give you feedback on the next, next set of experiments that may lead to a, a, a company taking it in uh, down the road. So it's sort of, you know, you report your invention to us, we decide if we're going to file or not. Um, we usually have to file much earlier than most, let's say, companies would because it's an academic institution. Our mission is to publish. And so we are not going to hold off publication uh, in order to file or keep a patent application. So we'll file very early compared to most companies. And so then we'll go to those companies and see if they're interested and they'll give us feedback. Well, the researcher may or may not have the resources to advance the technology to the next stage and then we'll go back to industry and see if they you know, now are interested. Sometimes it takes years for the technology to mature to a stage where industry is then interested in taking it into either in-house or developing uh, a company around it. So 
it, it can take some time, but it's, you know, we're, we're basically with you the whole way, right? And we're making that decision, making patent decisions throughout that process. It's not like once you file a patent, you have to keep going with it during, till the end. We can make decisions and, and sort of iterate and change direction depending on where the research takes us. Ron mentioned um, that we're a research university and our lifeblood is publication and um, presenting and sharing our discoveries with our colleagues. So Jeff, do you want to say a word about the ramifications of disclosure? Sure, the ramifications of disclosure, that's a, it's a great question. There are significant consequences to disclosure and publication. So let me start with the the recommendation first. If you're in your laboratory and you have interesting research results and you're not sure whether they're significant, you're not sure whether they're patentable, you're not sure whether there's a commercial opportunity, if you find yourself in that position, your best step, if you're interested in patenting, is to talk to CTV before you communicate those results off of Columbia's campus. So you could talk to Ron, you could talk to Ofra, talk to me, anyone at CTV. The reason to do this is as follows. Once you send those results off-site, once, for example, you post an abstract somewhere, or once you send a grant application to an agency that doesn't treat grant applications confidentially, you are potentially jeopardizing your patent rights. Every patent system in the world has a clock, and the clock determines whether those rights are still available. Publication is something that triggers the clock starting. The U.S. has a very generous clock. It lasts a year. It's hard to miss it, although on occasion, sometimes it is missed. But the rest of the world has a clock that has essentially no grace. So if you publish today and you have not filed your patent application in Japan today, tomorrow in Japan your patent rights are lost. That means anyone can make, use, or sell your patent, your invention in Japan for free. So it brings us back to where I started, which is if you have interesting results and you really don't know, I don't know, this was, it was difficult for me to do. It seems really uh, interesting. If you're not really sure what to do with it commercially or patent-wise, talk to us first. We never ask you to change your timetable for publication or disclosure. We just ask, what is it? And if it's interesting to us, we will file before then so the rights are protected. But we cannot go backwards in time. We can't fix things after the fact. We've received many phone calls from PIs at airports about to board the plane and going off to a conference to present some paper or another saying, maybe I should have called you earlier, but this is what I'm about to present. Do you think you know, there's something here and there's something that I should be filing on? And um, from time to time, we will call our outside law firm and say, please file a quickie provisional application so that that presentation does not blow our um, rights to file, a, to seek patent protection. And then we'll work with the PI after that to flesh it out, to you know, prepare a proper filing. But at least that disclosure does not blow our rights to obtain patent protection in the future. So that happens from time to time. My paper is about to publish. My paper is about to publish online, which is um, you know, a new phenomenon over the last bunch of years that is um, 
you know, something that we have to keep track of. So please keep us in mind. We will not delay your publication. We'll try to just work with you and, and be half a step behind you in terms of um, helping to protect that, that discovery. And one other thing I'd like to add is let us decide if there's an invention that's worthy of filing a patent. Don't make that decision uh, without speaking to us first because there are a lot, we, we sort of can think about science in a very different way than, than the investigators can sometimes in, in trying to tease out what is the patentable invention of their basic discovery. So we'd rather you have a discussion with us about your, your discoveries and your publications so we can you know, advise and guide you and think through with patent attorneys is there a patentable invention here that is worthy of filing? So let us work with you to make that decision rather than not report the invention to us because you don't think it's patentable or commercializable. Does anybody have any questions at this point? Just throw them at us. <laughs> No. Oh, so the question is um, whether presentations are, are the same as a publication with respect to patentability. And so the answer is yes. I don't know if, from what I hear from my investigators at every presentation or conference now, there are people videotaping every presentation, taking pictures of your slides, taking pictures of your posters. So anything that is available in a public setting is a public disclosure, regarding it, regardless if it's a publication or not. And the same uh, is to be said for internet, like if you put Sure, exactly, page. exactly. If you put, just put your newest discovery on your web page, I guarantee you the patent office, when they do their examination, find the craziest stuff out there when you did not know it existed anymore, and that will negate your ability to patent. I had one recent case where they found a newsletter from the department from 1995 that disclosed the target, and there was that went the patent. So, you know, so think about what you're putting out there and talk to us first. <laughs> That's the take home. Yeah, when you hear the term disclosure, uh, you should be thinking the following things. You know, publications, clearly, whether they're online or in print, but anything that results in the communication of information off of Columbia's campus. So if you're giving a presentation at a national conference, you're presenting information outside of Columbia, that is a disclosure that potentially will trigger a loss of rights. You put it on the internet, it's a loss of rights. If you make your invention, you make a prototype, and you use it in public, that will trigger a loss of rights. If you make one of your samples of your invention and you sell it, that'll also trigger a loss of rights. These are a lot of things to remember. PhD really thesis. PhD right. thesis. PhD yeah. thesis. Right. Yeah. Really simple way to avoid all of these issues. When you come up with some interesting results in the laboratory and you're not sure what to do with them before you send that article out or before you send the grant application out, talk to us. We don't ask you to change your timetable. We just take what steps need to be taken to protect the patent rights until we can figure out what to do with it commercially. Yeah. Can I just add one quick thing before taking another question? Jeff said at Columbia it's not an issue, but unless you're, if it's a closed session at Columbia, it's not an issue.
But if it's an open invitation, let's say like a thesis defense, where the public is invited, that's considered a public disclosure. So, yes? Progress reports and presentations to federal agencies or foundations that are funding you, public or private? I generally don't worry about anything sent to a federal agency because those are typically confidential. But if you are sending them to a private foundation, typically they will not be confidential. Good. Even if all your industrial partners, et cetera, are present? <clears throat> it's a good question. It's a good fact pattern. It, it leads me to where I started, which is if you're going to something where other parties are going to be present and you're not sure, hmm, is this public? Is this not public? Is it confidential? Does it trigger a loss of rights? I might not know either, but I do know a very easy solution to file before it happens because then the question has no relevance. Do you ever work with people making smartphone apps? Mm, sometimes. Not, I don't know. Does downtown you would know maybe more here? We do receive a number of invention disclosures from smartphone apps. There are many ways to commercialize apps. Patenting usually is not a good fit. One of the reasons it's not a good fit is because when you have an app, you don't know how it's doing what it's doing. You see the results only. You don't see the actual black box inside, what, what gears are turning. Commercialization of patents often depends upon finding people who are practicing the steps that are laid out in the patent. And if you can't see what is going on in the black box, it's very hard to commercialize But we do have, I think, an app store, Columbia App Store. Um, so if you do develop an app, we can make it, CUIT, CUIT can uh, make it available for download or click licensing. We also do click licensing, so we have our own website where if someone wants to post the description of their app, and then they can download it from our website and they'll pay by credit card and then it's distributed to whoever in some sort of formula to who was involved in developing that app. So I think it depends on the app. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I teach several courses where students develop some interesting technologies. Um, and I'm aware that the students retain the IP on their technologies if, in, if formed in a classroom. But I was curious if you had any advice for what these students should do since they can technically not use the Columbia resources to bring their technologies to market? Let me give the first answer and then I'd be very interested to hear what my business counterparts say. When I think of it as a lawyer, I always think of it as, you know, like this. There's nothing to lose by approaching the university. They're under no obligation, but the university has a lot of great free resources. These folks right here, me. You can approach us and we can give you some sense on you know, is it patentable? Is it commercializable? What are the obstacles? So even if we don't own it, you get a lot of free input. And if you decide based on talking to us that, yeah, you know what, I think I own it and I want to pursue it, you can ask us for what's called a release letter, which will be basically something you will have for downstream commercialization when the VC asks you, do you own it? Do you have clearance from Columbia? So that's my suggestion. I'm going to answer it from a slightly different direction. And that is, if you're wondering how to advise the students how best to advance this idea and how to make it into something, 
I see no reason and no advantage to them to resist collaborating with a faculty member or somebody at Columbia in order to develop it into something. And so yes, they may at the end of the day end up having partnered and collaborated with somebody, but think about that proverbial pie. Having a piece of a larger pie is at the end of the day better than having all of nothing. So there is a lot that's involved in taking an idea and making it into a product. And so I would advise people to try to identify whatever resources they need in order to advance it down that path. And working with somebody who might be formally affiliated with the university might be very important and instrumental to moving it to the next point. It's a common proposition here. We use it a lot in our offices, at least we use it in my office, 100% of nothing. That's great, you have 100% of it, but you have nothing. And also I think what we didn't uh, talk about is the cost of filing patents. So for students, the cost of filing, and faculty member for that, that matter, the cost of filing patents is very prohibitive to, to pursue on your own, right? So we take the, those costs and risks uh, up front. And so the costs are very upfront uh, loaded in the very early stage of the process, way before revenues generally occur. And we take that risk on our own, or the university takes that risk. And so that's another reason maybe for a student it would be advantageous to, to partner with a faculty member that would then make it a Columbia University technology. The other thing I think we talked about earlier is if we're not interested, if we would give it back to you. In 10 years of being here, we've, I've given back the numerous inventions, but I think one faculty member has actually gone out and spent the money to actually file on their, their patent because it's what, 10 to 15,000 the first stage, 25,000 to 50,000 before you get it issued. So we're talking serious money here to, to put forward for a patent application that may never issue and may never be commercialized. So in addition to these costs for filing a patent, what are the costs, like the attorney fees? So I know the, I've been the attorney fees going back and forth with the patent office, um, and then also not only the patent filing, but our, you know, we're out there marketing and pitching and, and negotiating the, the license. So even starting a company and negotiating the license is a very expensive proposition. So. so let's say a student does decide, you know, this is something they want to do and collaborates with a faculty member to further develop it. How um, are royalties, for instance, divided? How, how do you know the student, what percentage a student will get? Does anybody in the university help you decide who has the bigger idea or should get the bigger piece of the pie? So between inventors, it is the inventor's responsibility to decide how to divvy up the pie. Within, but the, from the pie that the university gets, there's a distribution policy that is uh, set by the faculty senate and it's available on our website, near, which is techventures.columbia.edu. Look on the inventor resources and it's, there's basically between 20 to 40% of the uh, licensing revenue is shared as personal income 20% is goes back to the inventor's lab, and then the rest is divvied up among different parts of the university. So, but that's 
we can draw a pie chart or you can go to our website. When Columbia's all universities have distribution policies for license revenues that come in. And I think it's um, interesting to note that when Columbia benchmarked our policy against the policies of our peer institutions, Columbia is someplace in the middle. Uh, so it's not the most aggressive, it's not the most generous, it's not the least generous. It's in the ballpark of kind of the, the mean of research universities out there. So there's a share that goes to inventors personally, there's a share from license revenue that goes to the inventor's laboratory, and then there are shares that go to Central University, the department, and the school. So going back to this example, like, you know, the student, and let's say student or any other faculty member, they decide, okay, they're going to, you know, leave the university and, or graduate from Columbia and go to another institution. What happens to the royalties or any so, other shares? So the royalties follow you and your heirs if something were to happen to you, as long as so. That it follows That's you if you leave the university, the personal income. And um, that's actually an interesting question because we see investigators and faculty members or, or postdocs moving from one institution to another, both leaving Columbia for another academic institution or being recruited to Columbia from someplace else. And very often their project continues. Uh, so if it had been licensed, so whatever revenues are coming in will follow you, as Ron described. But if the project is in the middle and began at one institution and continues at the other institution, and then it's a combination, the, the portfolio is a combination of the results generated at both institutions, we um, are actually very busy negotiating what we call interinstitutional agreements, which are agreements between Columbia and other institutions to um, agree to what the um, proportional and fair and equitable sharing between our institutions ought to be for that particular uh, portfolio. And so it's really not a concern. It's something that all institutions are familiar with because people move around. But I, and I'll add, it's not just about people moving around, but let's say you collaborate with another uh, investigator at a different institution. We'll, if it's a jointly developed invention, we'll also put in place the same agreement specifying how the two institutions will share, who will take the lead on licensing and marketing the technology, and so forth. Oh, I think one more question. Yes, yes. Uh, you mentioned the results. So I thought that what's patentable is actually methods that lead to results. And then there was this, I thought it was an urban legend, people patenting biological pathways and genes. Well, so, so I, we'll let the patent <laughs> turn. <laughs> so I say results as sort of a, a general recommendation. If you're doing something in the laboratory that's interesting to you, has generated something unexpected, that's usually an indication it's time to talk to us, or at least it would be worthwhile. What actually is patentable generally are not the results. It's, as you said, it is the method or it is the apparatus that you're using or something else. We are looking to claim the highest level description of the invention. 
Uh, patents are very much in the news. The U.S. Supreme Court is often considering the scope of patents and what is or is not patentable. So it's in some areas very unclear where the law currently is. So you can't patent a phenomenon? No. Cannot patent a phenomenon, a physical, um, so the three exceptions are laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas. None of those is patentable, but what actually constitutes a natural phenomenon or an abstract idea is actively a matter for debate among the courts and also the patent office. It is an evolving area. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, I was curious, uh, when do you begin to recuperate your cost? So if this patent process is so expensive, and of course it's not that all the things that you patent that they find uh, the commercial, you know, development right away, so which are the steps with which you recuperate the cost right away? So when we negotiate the deal, part of the negotiation is, um, is about how we will recoup the patent costs in addition to what license fees or royalties will be paid. And, uh, and, and this tech transfer is usually about sort of, well, we license a lot of technologies. The revenue is generated by usually a handful of technologies at most universities, and they pay back for the costs associated with those other technologies. It's sort of a, a lottery ticket system. <laughs> but you lease the license. How, how does it work? You recuperate it from which portion? One of the oh, uh, one of the terms that one of the terms of a license agreement that is negotiated is reimbursement of past patent expenses. So, in the context of entering into a license agreement with an investor or with a company, with whomever, with somebody who, has, um, who is interested in acquiring the rights to your patent or patent application in order to develop it into a product. So uh, first, I mean, uh, in terms of the logistics, you, you market, you kind of socialize the opportunity and you make people aware of it. Um, you're, you consider yourself you know, fortunate if you find one or more parties who are interested in uh, getting into a more serious discussion about terms for obtaining the rights to that particular invention or technology, and then you negotiate terms. And so one of those terms would standardly be reimbursement of past patent expenses and responsibility for um, patent costs going forward as they are incurred. And this applies even if you are the inventor that uh, submitted for uh, you know, uh, university for the license and you want to develop them. So if you are so, the same person. Uh -huh. So if you're wanting to start a company yeah. on your own technology, yeah. so once you have, once the company commercial entity has taken a license to the intellectual property and it is the responsibility of the commercial enterprise to pay patent expenses going forward and we will negotiate with you regarding past patent expenses. So I, I would like to say in answer to that question that we've um, made a concerted and deliberate effort to come up with terms 
for faculty startups, so specifically for faculty startups, to um, come up with a structure that is as friendly and as supportive of the startups in their early years in order to help them maximize their chances of success. And what that means is that the financial terms involve a minimum of payments to the licensor to the university in those early years, including patent reimbursement for past costs. So we will put those off. We'll defer that for two years for faculty startups. Thank you. Any okay. other questions? What else? I think that's it. Before we conclude, I do have one, one parting message to everybody here. Uh, so we entitled this, like I have an invention, what do I do now? Um, but when we were thinking about this and actually talking about it internally, uh, what we realized was we don't want you to come to us only when you think you have an invention. Uh, so what some of my, my fellow panelists said um, in the last hour or so was we want to talk to you we want to hear about your research. We want to be familiar with the area of your research so that we can kind of keep it in our portfolios when we, and be aware of it when we're in discussions with companies or investors who are looking for, um, you know, who is working in this area. I'd be interested in hearing what is going on at the university in this area or another. And we will introduce you and set up meetings for you with patent attorneys so you can get some feedback as to, you know, if you are interested in getting that feedback about what path might actually be fruitful in terms of developing a patentable invention, if what you are coming in to discuss with us is not quite there yet, we'll be happy to set up that discussion for you. In this era of emphasis on translational research, so you know, not all the basic scientists know what what the next steps along the path ought to be, and what is going to develop into a development that is of most interest and attractive to industry, which is a whole nother kettle of fish. Is so um, we're happy to introduce you to our experts and residents, our executives and residents. We're happy to um, to sit down and talk to you and, and share our own experiences and what we understand industry is looking for and what their priorities are. And so please do not wait until you recognize that you have developed a patentable invention because so often investigators come in and after they've had discussions with us, they say, oh, maybe I should have come to talk to you earlier. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.